Annie, hello. Hi. Hi. How's things? Good. Yeah. Busy, busy week. How about you? Uh, very busy. <laughs> so, I, I, uh, I don't take breaks though, and it's not like a badge of honor. I just, I don't know. The weeks and the weekends sort of blur together. So, I don't know. Mm -hmm. What is that? Is it the same for you, or you just, uh, do you actually take time to not be you obsessed know, with work? <laughs> I think that, um, living with a partner who has like a normal job, like a in person job, regiments me a little bit more. And so, like, I'm at my parents' house right now, and I stayed up really late the other night just like working on things. But, it's so antisocial for me to like work on the weekends and like late in the evenings when he's around. So I pretty much just follow his work schedule, but he works like 65 hours a week and I don't work that many hours. Um, so it does give me a little bit of flexibility in there to yeah. um, sleep more than him. <laughs> that helps. That helps. That's pretty cool. Um, yeah, it's always balanced. We'll get more into that too in a second, but I guess for people who don't know who you are, do you want to give a quick intro? Yeah. So I am Annie Nelson on TikTok. I'm Annie's Analytics. It's kind of my name on all my different platforms, Annie's Analytics. Um, basically, I used to be a nanny and I got my master's degree in occupational therapy, which I graduated in 2022. And um, while I was finishing my master's degree, I decided to start learning data analytics as a side hustle because I thought I'd be able to like analyze spreadsheets um, for like 20 bucks an hour which was not a good thought. Actually, I actually don't think those positions exist like as even on Fiverr and stuff, but I thought maybe. So I took the Google data analytics certificate and I started a TikTok because I thought if I could do this, like single moms and stuff would really love to know this. And then in a month I had 10,000 followers on TikTok and people were so invested. And I realized that my original plan wasn't gonna work. This was in February of 2022. And then in April of 2022, I was in Austin, Texas, and I had one of the best weeks of my life visiting a friend who lives there. And I was like, if I switch careers to become a data analyst, I could work remotely and then I could do more of this. But if I get an in-person job that has limited PTO, I probably wouldn't be able to visit Austin very often was the thinking. So I kept going with it. And then in July of 2022, I got my first job in data as a Tableau consultant for a small Tableau consulting organization and kept going with my, I was going to shut down my social medias, but then oh. I kept getting messages from people saying how helpful it was and how valuable and how they had left their dead end job and doubled their salary and were working from home. And I was like, all right, well, I guess I'll keep, I'll guess I'll keep going if it's that, that helpful. Um, and then I kind of, it's kind of evolved into a thing that I, I think is really good for my career as well as helping other people. And um, yeah, I, I got my, I'm in my second job as a date in data now, I got laid off in June of, of 2023. So mm -hmm. then in, I started in August of 2023 at GitLab, which is not GitHub. Everyone always says, oh, I know GitLab. And then they realize they actually know GitHub. Um, mm -hmm. But I work at GitLab and it's great because it's, it's got a great culture all remote. And so I get to keep traveling. I've been to like New Zealand and going to Costa Rica. Fun. Those are kind of my, that's my kind of thing now. I'm a, a data analyst and a content creator. And my big things are like data and then also remote work and traveling. Yeah, I'm looking at your TikTok. You got like 5.5 million views <laughs> in TikTok. That's yeah, I, <laughs> I have, I mean, yeah, I have two videos that have both crossed the two, crossed the one million. I think I've got- really? 
cross the 1 million threshold. I took a video of myself getting laid off, but it wasn't like, did you see that video of the girl recently who took a video of herself getting laid off? Yeah. 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 While um, she's getting laid off, did you do the same thing or was it? Yeah, it was the same thing, but really? I, I didn't record the, I, I mean, I, audio was recorded, but I didn't include the audio in the videos. It was just, it was just a video, like just the yeah. visual of me getting like laid off. Cause I knew I was about to get laid off when it happened. Um, and then I voiced over it to kind of just like talk about what it was like to get laid off. So that video I think is at 2 million views now. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> what was know. it like? I mean, cause you were an OT graduate um my dad's actually he was an ot for a long time um so i know what that works like you you go i mean you you, you literally cannot do the job remote it would be impossible um mm -hmm. you know uh so very not fun at least what's that very unfun at least i did a couple of remote sessions okay yeah it's pandemic, but it would be pretty tricky yeah oh, it's fucked. <laughs> yeah i can't i can't even imagine um my dad used to work with a, um, a lot of me mentally disabled people and um you know worked on motor skills and stuff and it was just just a slow slow process there but but that's a big difference from being uh, an analyst right and so then an analyst that blows up on TikTok while you just graduated from OT school. So what was that, what was that sort of transition point like? Cause I don't think a lot of people do that. Yeah. Um, surprisingly, a lot of people, not the TikTok part, but a lot of people actually, the, the pathway from the health sciences and teaching into uh, an analytics is actually um, pretty strong. A lot of my followers are teachers actually. Interesting. Um, because because these people are being so treat poorly treated. And so they like love being with kids, but then realize that if they get a tech job, they can like get paid a livable wage and like not have to take PTO to go to the doctor. Um, so that's why it resonates with a lot of people in my story. But it's been interesting. I think the weird part was when I was learning data analytics, I realized I hit this kind of like liminal gray space at some point where I was no longer the person that I was before. Like I had kind of quested off and decided I, I didn't want to work an in-person job. And I had kind of seen the opportunities of a remote, more flexible lifestyle, but I wasn't that person yet. And I didn't have any friends. I didn't know anyone in the industry. Like I didn't know anyone in data. Um, and I didn't like have any connections, any friends and, and nobody in my life like knew anything about data. And so there was this weird gray space of like, I'm not who I was, but I'm also not yet who I want to be. I think mm. maybe in that space a little bit, but it was like very pronounced for, I'd say about four to five months. Um, it feels more normal now. And I, I've realized that like my background working with people is what makes me a really good analyst. And every mm. time I get like positive comments from my boss or um, people at my job or people on LinkedIn about like, basically being good at data, it it's always a reflection of the people skills that I built before. That's really fascinating. Um, walk me through that. What, why are you so good with people and, and how does that translate over to being a good analyst? Yeah, I, I've always been really interested in psychology um, and I really like to unpack people like my, my friends all come to me as their like relationship counselor. And um, I've had jobs where like 
every new hire, like I like would sit on interviews and stuff and meet new hires because then I could like give kind of a download of like my perceptions of the, the person and stuff. Um, so this is something that's always been really fascinating to me. And I, I just kind of, as a nanny, when you work with, I worked with like multiple families usually at a time. So I was managing that schedule. And then usually the families have multiple kids. So like I had one family with like a newborn and then a three-year-old and then a five-year-old and like managing their needs all at the same time and keeping them occupied and on the track their parents want them to be is not all that different from working with stakeholders, not to like infantilize the stakeholders, but it's just like like I, I actually don't like the way that a lot of times people in data will like really look down on their stakeholders. Like, oh yeah, mm. we are babysitting our stakeholders and they're so dumb. Well, like I don't, I'm not saying it that way because I don't agree with that. It's just that like, it's not their job to be a data analyst. And so right. I have to obviously take my job down to the lowest notch because it's not their job to do my job. Um, but they each have kind of these competing priorities and I need to like check in with them and manage them and like, give them things in the style that they need. Like sometimes it needs to be a sync. Sometimes they actually would rather review a video. Sometimes they want to comment on an, an issue, which is we use GitLab for all of our project management. Um, and so knowing that kind of different styles and being able to like check in with people um, is really is really valuable to being able to kind of get things done because most data projects, it's not just like, I need you to write to make this data model. Mm -hmm. It's like, I need you to make this data model in consideration with like all of these other things. Why do you think that, that some analysts view their stakeholders uh, the way you described? It's a good question. I hear this from, I hear this from not just analysts. I hear this from like universally data people. Mm. And I, I wonder if sometimes business users feel the same way about us, you know, like if, oh, they're so dumb, why can't they just understand this? sales concept or whatever. Uh, I don't know. But I think it's just because, and I and I definitely have like fallen for this before, essentially. It just seems so simple. Like the things that I'm that I'm asking from them or the things that they're like, they'll come to me and they'll be like, okay, these are the things I want out of this project. And it's like, you don't have any of this data. None, none of those questions that you want makes sense. And you don't actually want this. This is what you actually want. And it it's like this curse of knowledge of like, mm -hmm you know all of these things whereas they just have so much less like context already built up around things and so mm -hmm. what they're really asking you they haven't sat down and thought about the whole data landscape what they're really asking you is like i need you to solve this problem for me yeah and we need to be able to translate that because that's our job but it feels very like simple and like you know well why can't you you know it's very it's, it's very like simple and small minded of you. And actually I see this the most, and you can tell me if you see this the most, I actually see it the most in people talking about executives. Have you seen that? I see this, I would say universally, not just data people, but I think that if you're not, if you're not an executive, then you sort of feel executives are, um, you know, sort of out of touch maybe, right? It seems to be the perception I, uh, well, I said a lot of the comments. Um, and I, I think that, you know, it, and a lot of the executives, I think, uh, you know, they might feel maybe the same way about the people that they are accountable to, you know, that, that they manage and oversee. So, yeah, I think it's it's a sort of like this universal loathing across the board where if like you're not one of us, then you're one of them. And I'll, I'll probably find some way to find fault with you. Right. So I have noticed this with data people. I've noticed that the people who deal with data people 
Um, I've noticed it with um, engineers, you know, and execs. Like, why why can't the execs just seem to make up their mind about what they want? Why do why do requirements keep changing all the time? Mm-hmm. Do they understand what we do? Right. So yes, I, I I do see this. Um, I wish it wasn't the case, but because um, it causes a lot of tribalism. Mm-hmm. But so it is. <laughs> you know, you know what I mean. It, it's a. Um, yeah, I mean, th- it's interesting. I mean, one of my clients, uh, uh, I felt like it's a breath of fresh air because the, the CEO knew exactly what all the problems were with data. Mm. And when I talked to individual contributors to the T, they echoed exactly what the CEO saw. Wow. So I think that was a you know a very enlightened, uh, and I think very. Um, I think that that CEO in particular was was paying attention. Mm-hmm. So, but I I don't know that that's always the case. Yeah, yeah, and I do they like also the question is like should they be paying attention to that level of granularity or is it like have they hired the right managers and VPs and stuff to then delegate that down because I I'm used to obviously a very small ecosystem like yeah. with, with being a nanny and stuff. <clears throat> but when the ecosystem is a lot larger, I've started talking to more. When I was a consultant, I worked with a lot of small companies and then now GitLab is like 2000 people and publicly traded. And so I had done like a CFO shadow program and I have been to a lot of like our our earnings calls and stuff with analysts where I just listen in on that. And it's like, okay, I I understand why you have no idea what I'm talking about because it's just like, it's just not a good use of your time. Like they have like the CFO, for example, has to have like a lot of his job is around being the CFO of a public company and he has to report out to analysts and answer all the investor calls and everything. And it's not that he doesn't understand any of the granular stuff, it just wouldn't make sense for him to to concern himself with the details of my job, you know? Yeah, I mean, especially when you're talking about analytics because there's, um, I mean, that can go any, that means a lot of different things, I think, to a lot of different people in a lot of different companies. Yeah. So I wouldn't expect my, you know, the executives to know all the various statistical methods of analyzing data and so forth. It'd be pretty sick if they did. Um, but, you know, I, mean, I think the most impressive person I've ever seen is Warren Buffett. Mm-hmm. Like you can sit in a meeting with him and he will literally spout off numbers and calculate probabilities in his head. And he knows his numbers for every um, operational unit of his business, Berkshire Hathaway. And there's like 300, 400,000 employees there, but he knows every number to the T, but that's rare. Right. Yeah. And he's also got like an IQ of 160. So, um, but that's the only time I've seen somebody who had just in the, I would say the deepest fundamental level of understanding of their business. But I don't think that's the case. And I don't think that's an expectation. Most executives, um, well, I don't think operate at that level. Right. But I have seen it. But to your point, it's, um, I wouldn't expect them to be able to go do your job, for example. That'd be weird. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. And then, so, I mean, you know, you, you, um, you're an analyst, you work with, uh, stakeholders, um, you might be sort of this, uh, stakeholder whisperer, so to speak, cause you, you're, uh, <laughs> this clairvoyance or whatever you have, uh, <laughs> understanding people. I mean, walk me through how that translates into being a better analyst. Yeah. I think that it's the ability, I think it saves a lot of time and it allows me to focus in the right places. Mm. And so, um, and it, it allows me to be more of a manager of one, manage myself, 
because so I started at my company in mid-August and um, I have a great manager and just kind of team that I belong to. And they, they put me, I'm only like now a year and a half into the field, but they put me on some fairly like high visibility projects, making these like dashboards that the CFO and people would be seeing. That's kind of what led me down that route of thinking about those things. And I, I got to just kind of manage that myself. And I've essentially like taken data product ownership of it. Nice. And so I'm working with the stakeholders directly to get things reviewed. So initially I kind of needed a support from my boss of like knowing who to talk to and everything. But I feel now like I finally have the hang of it. And so I can meet directly with the leaders of the different teams to get review approval and, and ask them about anything from like how we're calculating the numbers in DBT in the back end versus how they want to see it on the front end and what filters and everything and the overall and being able to take ownership of the whole process. I think is, um, and I like I don't want to like sound full of myself, but I think it's pretty unusual for this stage of career. Oh, there's is. a lot of people I know who are at my level, like who have been in the field for about as long as I do. Um, I haven't heard them talking about anything along the lines of data product ownership. Yeah. So. No, I think at that at that stage, most analysts I think are just finally getting over a lot of the tactical stuff. Right. By that I mean. Uh, especially when you come out of like an analytics uh, training or whatever, back when I got started, there really wasn't a thing um, like that, but I've seen them. And, and so, you know, but I think you're, you're interested in applying the methods, right? I, I, I want to try these algorithms out. I want to try these approaches out. And um, I think back for about a year, year and a half, you, you become attuned to actually probably start answering business questions like for real. Uh, but it takes a, I think a level of maturity and um, it doesn't happen overnight. I don't think. Like a person like you is a rare exception where you just kind of have this like EQ where you can just sort of figure it out. Um, but that's abnormal. Yeah. I'm not saying you're abnormal in a, in a bad way, but <laughs> maybe but you are, I don't know. But uh. I, think those things with women, I think I've been able to kind of swim in parallel on those things. Like I've been yeah. able to build my stakeholder management skills, which is new for me, like in the corporate setting. Um, Fortunately, GitLab is really good about like like short toes and um, like I feel like I can message like the VP of sales or whatever to ask them questions. I usually go through someone else, but like I don't feel like there's this hierarchy that I can't even talk to or even mm -hmm. look at someone above me, um, which has been very helpful. But I think I've been able to develop the stakeholder management alongside kind of all the technical things because I already have such a foundation of working with people and managing stakeholders that it's it just kind of naturally comes in with it. And I also got really, really good training using Tableau at my last job. My last boss was nice. phenomenal. Um, and honestly, the company that hired me initially probably shouldn't have hired anybody on my team because they like had this idea that that they were going to build this Tableau team from start, like from entry level people. And then they like got rid of um, the like VP who was responsible for bringing a lot of that business in and like Tableau stopped sending them business as a partner. So the amount of work that my team had to do like went down dramatically, but that gave my boss more time to really like dive deep on, on training us mm. on like really being good consultants in Tableau and him and I are still really good friends. Um, like I call him all the time to like rubber cool. with him on things because I don't really have anyone else at my company who's like doing Tableau like how I am. Um, so that was really helpful to have a really solid technical foundation in Tableau and then also have a really technical people skills foundation in stakeholder management. And so I got to just kind of do those together. 
That's super cool. And sort of uh, connects us to uh, the book you wrote. Uh, <laughs> so along the way, um, recently, you published a book. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. Yeah. So in in um, January of 2023, a publisher at Wiley reached out and said, hey, I think you've got a really incredible story and I'd love for Wiley to be the one to publish it. And I was like, okay, this is interesting. But like, I've looked at a bunch of Wiley books. Um, some of the mm. books I really like in data are Wiley and they're all very technical, um, like more like technical manuals. Yeah. And I was like, I, I don't, I don't think that I can like write a technical manual about becoming a data analyst because I think the whole value that I, I bring to it is like my story. And like I shared on my TikTok as I was going through it about how like my apartment was a mess because I was, I was job searching while also doing this internship full time and I was exhausted and I like hadn't gone for even a mental health walk in weeks and I was having a terrible time and I almost gave up trying to become a data analyst because I thought it was impossible because no one would hire me. Um, so I shared all that stuff and I said, I think that stuff is really valuable. And so I, I don't know, like, I don't think I could do it without that. And they're like, no, 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 this is your story. Like, however you want to tell it, we want you to tell it how you want to tell it. I was like, okay. Um, and they also said like they would pay me upfront instead of like some companies, I think like packed, you only get paid if you get sales, but they're like, no, we'll pay you a good amount of change upfront to write the book. And um, I was like, okay but I'm going to New Zealand for six weeks in February. And so I need to do it after that. And they're like, cool. <laughs> so I came back um, in March. And the really cool thing about writing the book that I, I don't know if I've mentioned this on my LinkedIn or not yet, but um, the writing of the book ended up being very in parallel to my life. Like it could have been like the, mm. the plot of like a science fiction movie. Basically, one year after starting to learn data analytics is when I started writing the book. So right in that space of writing section one about like learning, taking courses and stuff was just as I was like really reflecting on the past year of having done that. And then I started to look for a new job because things in my last job were not going great. And I just as I started like building my portfolio is when I finished the first section and got into the second section which was all about portfolios. So as I was writing the whole section, I actually did a portfolio project for the book that showed like essentially an example of like different levels of Tableau projects, like what you could expect out of a first project, beginner, intermediate, and regular user. And that was a lot of work. Um, and I just put that into my actual portfolio, like for job searching. And it actually brought me in three leads for potential new jobs. And also I wrote it for the book. I did it for the book which was really cool. Wow. And then as the day that I finished the portfolio section and moved into section three, like job searching and resumes and stuff, I got laid off. <laughs> Crazy, right? It is like out of a movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, and then I, I wrote that while I was, I was kind of doing, I had already started job searching also at that point. Yeah. And then I decided to add a fourth section about like preparing for a layoff and, how to start a new job, you know, like how to like overcome imposter syndrome and succeed in your first 90 days and stuff. Um, and it was just as I was just about to get hired and like shifting gears into thinking about that. And so it, it walked with me in, in my life wow. for like months. <laughs> Interesting. So walk me through this. Cause it seemed like you're sort of writing a biography or autobiography at the same time um, mm -hmm. as you were uh, writing your book. How, how did you translate those experiences 
into something that would be kind of, um, I guess, more advice for analysts without having to, uh, um, uh, I guess, go on the spectrum of venting. Yeah. <laughs> um, I actually have definitely learned to flex the skill of sharing, not venting on my social media. Cause a lot of people, mm. I'm sure you've seen this on LinkedIn. People will go on and be like, the job market is terrible. No one's hiring no, me. I've never seen that at all. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> it's like every post. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, that's not going to get you hired, buddy. Um, so I, or, or trashing your employer. That's the other one I see yeah. a lot. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So that I had already kind of gotten flexed the skill, learned that skill there, but I don't know. It was, it was pretty natural. Actually. I, I basically, it, it mirrored a lot of the way that I think a lot of times I think, you know, like, I think a lot of analogies, I see a lot of connections. And so essentially like I would share I, like a piece, let's say, for example, a piece of my journey, like how, you know, I would say, okay, in this section, I want to write about optimizing your LinkedIn. And then I would maybe share like my experience with optimizing my LinkedIn. And then I would share the tips that I learned from that, that I think that you should reproduce or definitely stay away from what you do it. And then I tried to link to resources, especially on anything like career stuff. Like I'm not a career coach. So I tried to link out to as many researchers, re, um, resources as I could. Yeah. Um, and it, so it kind of just went back and forth like that. Sometimes I would start with the practical, you know, here's what I learned about this thing and then go into the story. There was one chapter building a portfolio, it was like chapter seven, which was pretty much all technical. Like I had some actual sample portfolio projects that I'd put in there. And then there was two chapters, which were pretty much entirely narrative, not technical at all. One of them was what it felt like to job search. And then I think the other one was, it was either what it felt like to get laid off or there was something, I feel like there was two of them, but I know that I definitely dedicated a whole chapter to just like how difficult job searching was emotionally. Wow. I mean, so the book's like how to become a data analyst, right? Yes. Um, <laughs> is this geared towards like your first job or um, your, your second job as a data analyst when you was your first one or like, like what, at what stage in your career would you want to read this? Yeah. First job. Um, it's, it's, you're supposed to be able to pick it up and be able to like, as long as you read from the beginning, be able to understand anything that you see in there. So there shouldn't be anything that requires any kind of background knowledge. And again, like I said, I kind of point out a lot of places where it's like, and then I don't, I don't teach data analytics in the book. Like I'm not telling anybody how to, how to write, how to use the sum function in SQL. Essentially, like, it's like how to pick a good course. You know, you should be looking for courses that have this, 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 and you shouldn't be learning Java in order to become a data analyst. And, you know, how, how, what, how do I know I've got enough portfolio projects in my portfolio to then go and apply for jobs? And just kind of my thinking on it. And I try and present a spectrum because there's so many opinions on the internet. Um, so I try and kind of present the spectrum of them. Some people think that you should never have a Titanic data set in your portfolio because it's a very used data set. Um, some people think that it's a great starting point. And so I tried to say, you know, here's the different opinions that I've come across. Here's what worked for me. Here's the resources that I like. Do with that what you may. <laughs> you mentioned that the internet's full of advice on uh, becoming a data analyst. I mean, it's full of advice on everything you think of practically. Uh, what's some of the worst advice you've seen for becoming a data analyst? Um, well, I think that surprisingly, like a lot of, I think that there's, there's two different like camp, like schools of thought. Um, there's people who know a lot 
okay, and there's three different schools of thought. There's people who are just shooting their mouth off who you shouldn't listen to, who just say dumb things. There's people who are like very much like me, like essentially me, but then they create a course or a boot camp or whatever because they they got a job or two in the industry and think that that just translates. And then there's people who are like really experienced. Um, and from the second two, I actually see, see questionable um, things from both of them. People who just got into the field recently and you know managed to get a job or two um, tend to be fairly like absolutist in saying like, Oh, it's they boil analytics down a lot. They say they mm. they say like, okay, all I needed was four po portfolio projects and uh, the Google certificates course, and I got a job. So that's all you need to get a job as a data analyst, um, which I think could be true. Um, but also, there's a lot of things that people aren't considering, and I see like also a lot of them are content creators and maybe in, comfortable in front of a camera. And so they'll give this advice of like, oh, just build yourself a brand, make some portfolio projects, and you'll get a job. Yeah. It's just not true. I've, I've had a bunch of coffee chats with people who are trying to get into data, and they're so awkward on camera. Like, they're not building themselves a brand, like how you are, you know, like not you particularly, but th those people. So I think that that is, could be good advice, but it's way too narrow. But then on the other side, yeah. There's people who are super, super experienced who um, some people give almost like aggressive advice. They're like, everything in your portfolio must be amazing. And you have to learn Python right away because you're going to need to know it as a senior data analyst and above. And it's like, okay, well, I became a data analyst without, I mean, I did learn Python, but I didn't need to. It wasn't, it wasn't valuable to me in my job applications. No one cared that I had taken a Python course. Um, so again, that's like too, I think that's too intense to be like, you know, all the way that direction. And I yeah. think kind of the two categories of bad advice I see the most out there. But I mean, it's, it's easier than ever, I would say, right. To, to have, cause everyone has a voice now, or at least, mm -hmm. the, or at least the ability to, to maybe have a voice. I still think that um, it's one to have a voice. It's another to be listened to. Yeah. Well, also being listened to a lot of times comes with you know, how pretty your face is. I mean, LinkedIn has tried in yeah. different ways to stop people from just posting selfies and succeeding. But the, but the chances that a pretty girl is going to post a, have a selfie do really well is almost impossible to solve for because yeah. it's just, it's just how the internet works. Um, I'm not saying that, obviously I'm not saying that pretty girls are dumb. I'm just saying that your ability to be heard is not usually or always tied to the merit of what you're saying oh yeah i've seen this a lot i mean i'm not on tiktok uh i'm on instagram and i see these uh, some data influencers uh and um you know so I, I would say objectively very attractive people uh, but i listen to the advice and i'm like i don't know who this is for it, it just seems very kind of empty advice uh mm -hmm. but they got a big following and you know more power to them um i mean i i have i have nothing going my direction in terms of uh, being a <laughs> you know a putting beautiful selfies on the, on the internet. So I don't need to worry about that. Um, I think I got to where I am, uh, through, uh, hopefully having substantive conversations and, um, maybe being a bit of a dork along the way. But, uh, um, so, I mean, there's more than one way you can be, you can be a homogeny old, old guy like me. And also, uh, I think finally get ahead in, uh, this game too. But, but it's, I, I think at the end of the day, it's, I think it would seem like people would see through a lot of the kind of shallow advice and hopefully gravitate towards, people like yourself who are probably providing a bit more, I wouldn't say a bit more, but a lot more meaningful and 
tangible advice. And what separates what I think what you're doing too is you actually took the time to write a book, which you know is not the easiest thing in the universe to do. Um, it's certainly not as um, easy as making videos or putting selfies on online. Uh, that was a lot of work. I mean, the thing I, I like to ask writers is like, why why do you do this to yourself? Um, <laughs> you have a million other things to do. I mean, you got a lot of hobbies and um, you know, books a lot of work. Uh, why? <laughs> yeah, I initially just wanted to just write a series of blogs. My initial right around the same time I got Wiley reached out to me. I was thinking, okay, I've got a lot of content out there in a lot of places, and a lot of people ask me about it. And I want to be able to have like a like a concise reference where if somebody wants to know what I have to say about tech interviews, they know mm -hmm. how to find that. And especially on TikTok, I think. I mean, everywhere and LinkedIn, um, that's pretty, pretty tough to do. And so I was thinking about maybe like making YouTube videos or like a series of blogs. Um, I do well on TikTok, but I actually personally don't watch YouTube very often because I'm much more of a reader than a listener. So I was a little bit hesitant about creating content that I wouldn't be personally consuming. Um, so I thought about maybe like a series of blogs and then Wiley reached out and I was like, okay, so this would be an opportunity for me to work with like a well-known publisher who's really respected. I would have an editor, they would pay me up front and then I'd have a physically printed book. And even if it doesn't sell anything, I think that's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. <laughs> not even, you know, not even for the money of it. I just think being able to say that I published a book with Wiley would be like a really cool thing for me and getting to work yeah. with a personal editor, um, especially so early on in my career, you know, like t writing a book about data a year into being a data analyst. I was like, heck yeah, that's really cool. So for me, it was just like, this will be a really cool experience. And the content existed entirely, almost entirely in my head already. So it was just about um, getting it out. But I'm not now considering myself a writer and on to the next book. Um, if I have something to say, I'll say it. But for now, I don't have any other books lined up. <laughs> I mean, would you would you write another one if you had something to say? I would if I if I felt like I had enough content to make into a book. But I don't know if I th I think that um, I don't know. I think hopefully as I move forward. Okay. Also, I wrote that book in the hopes that I can not be that person forever. So I think that mm. there is a really big market for that. Like break into data market. And now that I have a book in it, I could probably totally release a course and I could, you know, just talk all the time on my social media about yeah. audience. And um, I could probably, I could probably eventually quit my job and make more money doing that than I, at least for now, am making as a data analyst. Um, but I just, I don't want to be that person. So for me, the book was like, okay, you want to know about how I got into data? Here we go. I wrote yeah. a book, read the book. Now I'm ready to move on and talk about other things that I'm interested in right now, which is like the next stuff. Like we were just talking about stakeholders and stuff, way more interesting. I was about to say, I think that would be an interesting book for you to write. I mean, cause you, I think you're coming from a perspective of somebody who's, um, like I said, has, seems to have a lot better EQ and is, you know, maybe kind of remind me of my kid Milo, actually a bit of an empath, I would say um, in that regard, but just uh, more socially aware. And I mean, that would be a great book to, to, to read. I think that you know, my vote is you should, do that but it's i know it's a lot of work so um but no yeah i mean you don't want to be pigeonholed into the uh the you know I, I think it's it's a weird one where you you could be that the uh you know become a data analyst person but then at some point you become detached from that reality too yeah 
right? Like you aren't, unless you're like trying to find your first job yeah. every day, this isn't really your life. Uh, at some point you, you've moved on. It'd be like, if I wrote a book on how to become a data engineer, it'd be the, the, the dumbest book ever. I haven't applied for a job in I don't even know how long. Yeah, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, I haven't had a job for, for a long time either in a sense where I worked for somebody. So it's like, that would be a very disingenuous book to write. The advice would be terrible. Yeah. Um, you know, what, what, what do you say? Like, go build your network and, and, um, you know, um, you know, make friends with the, with the executives and all this stuff. It's like, it's, it's not advice. I mean, yeah. so, you know, and you, you you're going to reach that stage too really soon where you, you just outgrow that idea. You know, I mean, it's good. You wrote that book as a sort of a milestone of where you were, but you know, that, that's already in the past. So. Yeah. Yeah. So I get to think, kind of think about the next things for me. And like, I don't, I'm not inherently a content creator because I want to be a content creator. I think it's really good for my career. So as the, as the person with like a giant TikTok yeah. Uh, viewership. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But I, I think it's really good for something that I really enjoy about it is that I get to just talk about my life and then it like helps other people. And like, I'm a verbal yeah. processor. Um, which is funny because I, I learn by reading, but I process by speaking. And so it's kind of just like a, it's kind of just like a video diary for me. It's just like a, it's just like a therapy, you know, like it's just how I can just talk about my, about my life most of the time. But a lot of other content creators who got into it around the same time as me are now going down the road of sponsored posts and mm, yeah. making a pretty sizable income off of it. And again, that's just not me. Um, so I, I think I just am leaving my options open for the future to like let myself go where I want to go, let my brand go where I want to go because I'm not, I just can't ever see myself being the person that's going to promote sponsored products that I don't use. I know what you mean. I, I'm, I'm much the same way. I've done a few of them and I felt kind of weird about it. Um, I actually did one this morning for my friend, Matt Harris, and he just launched his book, uh, Effective uh, Pandas 2. And he's, he's a friend. I'll help mm -hmm. him out with that. That's, 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 you know, not a thing, but I think sort of the gratuitous uh, sponsored post stuff. It's, especially if you don't even know the product or use it, it seems a bit weird. Um, so yeah, I, I totally uh, agree. And the, the thing is, there's good money in it if you wanted to go that route. But I was actually talking with, um, um, who is it? Jordan Morrow. Uh, yesterday, if you know who he is, uh, we're having lunch. We're talking about influencer stuff and just kind of how it's it's a double edged sword. Where it's it's, it's the the money's good and it's immediate, but I think the problem is you depending on your goals, it could uh, have reputational effects on you mm -hmm. down the road. And so mm -hmm. it's something that you know I, I just tend to avoid unless it's a company that I actually like. And then we try and figure out you know interesting ways to do it. Um, our friend Carly, I like what she does because she's just completely unhinged anyway. Yeah. So she just, she has pretty hilarious posts. So yeah. Uh, yeah. so if, if I were to do posts, it would, it would be uh, along Carly. I mean, Carly and I, I think we always joke we're basically the the same person personality wise. We just happen to be, you know, I'm older, a different gender, but we're literally the same person. So you're a bit more <laughs> hinged online than Carly is as well. True. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> she is insane, but in the best way possible. Love you, Carly. Um, but yeah, I mean, different strokes for different folks, right? But it's, it's um, yeah, it is a balance for sure. Yeah, I agree with the reputational stuff. I was thinking about it the other day, and I know that my boss and my boss's boss, and then two levels up from that, see my posts on LinkedIn. I'm not going to say that they read every one of my posts, but I know that they see them. And I think that, like, I had one time in a one-on-one -on -one with my 
boss's boss. And he, he was like, yeah, I saw you posted this thing you posted on LinkedIn the other day. Like totally agree. I think that was really insightful. I think it was, I don't even remember what it was about, honestly. Um, but like I like I'm building a, a brand and a reputation from from talking about things that I think are real and that matter to me. Yeah. And um, you said earlier that you think people would see through the more shallow content and go to the more substantive content. I actually think it's the opposite. Interesting. Um, because of the way that algorithms work, I think that's if, true. If I were to post, you know, videos of myself with the five functions you need to know in SQL to become a data analyst and post all my adventures in the background, you know, all my on my remote work adventures, because I've worked from all kinds of cool places. Um, I actually think those would do much. Yeah, much you're right. Better, it would kill. You know, but I would probably lose the at least reading of, you know, I don't think that my my boss and everyone would read my posts anymore if I was posting about those things, they don't care. But I think that I would actually not be attracting potential bosses in the future. Like they wouldn't follow me because they don't they don't care about those things, you know, that like that's yeah. sponsored posts. Um, they, they would see that right away and be like, yeah, I don't want to follow that person. Mm -hmm. Yeah, content's a weird game, right? Like I, I'm going to be doing a lot more video this year, but I'm, we're, I'm always trying to think of a different approach too. And it's probably going to be the unpopular one. Right. I mean, I travel enough. I could, I could make a whole lifestyle vlog if I wanted. Mm -hmm. I don't ever do that. I mean, my Instagram stories are just like ridiculous half the time. They're just really stupid. Um, cause I just don't care about that kind of stuff. Right. I mean, and the thing is I mean, you and I are probably both leaving a lot of you know, potential influencer opportunities on the table. But I think if you take a look at the bigger picture and sort of the, the long game of it, uh, you know, at the end of the day, substance does win out and quality does win out over time. So I think it just depends on like what is your what is your objective, mm -hmm. um, you know. To what I do, it doesn't feel like work, um, yeah. you know. But uh, I just, which also means I'm working like every waking hour. But that's a different <laughs> subject. But at the same time, it's like I literally was at the climbing gym this morning and, and like working on a course, and mm -hmm. like, in, in between a kilter board sessions. Yes. So yeah, but it's just like that. But it doesn't feel like work. But I think if, but. I don't know about you, but for me, it feels like the persona that I put into my stuff is like very genuine. There's not a wall or there's not, there's not a facade between the two. Like it literally is the same person. Um, yeah. Is that how you approach things too? Yeah. I mean, that's one of the, the most, when people say to me that they love my content, genuine and authentic are two of the words that I, I hear the most. And I admittedly think I'm one of the only people I know who really, really enjoys their job. Um, I think yeah. a lot of people, who say that they enjoy their job don't not like not like I do at least right. um, so it's really nice for me to be able to kind of just naturally just love my job and talk about loving my job and when I talk about frustrations at my job things that I've hit that are hard it's it's me naturally working through them rather than having to like conceal all of the other you know all of the other stuff oh yeah I'm actually just taking screenshots of excel and putting them to powerpoints for other people to present uh, if that's what my job was I would have a very hard time talking about my job at all on the internet because I'm a bad liar so <laughs> uh, oh that's interesting so you also climb. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's one thing we, we uh, I think we, we talked about a bit. Um, what do you like about rock climbing? Probably the same stuff I like about data. I like the problem solving. Um, you know, I think it's funny. Us talking about climbing was like, I think the first thing that we ended up talking about outside of like a shared group chat with, with other people. Mm -hmm. And um, I was talking to someone the other day and they're like, how do you know Joe Reese? I was like, oh, well, we talk about climbing. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. <laughs> um, but 
I I like the the problem solving of it and that you know I, I do do this so I have found that when I'm working on a new concept in my brain like the first time I had to think about data modeling at different levels of granularity that was hard to get my brain around cuz I had to kind of learn that one on the fly um I went to the gym afterwards and I was lead climbing. So I'm, I'm like belaying and I'm belaying. And so belaying is when I'm not doing anything actively. And, and it was ticking away in the back of my brain. I didn't even realize it. And then all of a sudden, like my climber was almost near the top of the route. And I like audibly like gasped out loud. And someone next to me was like, are you okay? I was like, I'm sorry. I just, I got it. <laughs> I understood that the tables were not at the same granularity and that oh, no. we were having a hard time. And it actually it wasn't that they were not the same granularity. They weren't the same shape. And so mm -hmm. I realized that it needed to be, I think, unpivoted in order for us to put them together. And I finally, it like clicked. Um, so, you know. so for the audience, belaying is when you're holding the rope for the person who's climbing. Yeah. Uh, so Annie was uh, holding the rope for the person climbing and then had a, an epiphany. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> was the person leading or were they on top rope? Leading, yeah. It was oh, like great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sometimes he'll come down from climbs and he'll he'll look at me and he'll be like, are you thinking about work stuff? They'd be like, yeah, but I figured it out. <laughs> oh boy. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I know what you mean. I, I, uh, well, yeah, playing is one of those things where you, you kind of go on autopilot after a while, so you can do it, but it's actually the worst thing to go on autopilot with um, for very obvious reasons. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, um, indoor but, uh, playing. Indoors, fine. Although I notice these days in climbing, people will fall. They fall a lot farther than they used to. Because the ropes are more dynamic, maybe? Maybe the dynamic, maybe the ropes, but I think this let people, the slack is a lot more for whatever reason. Like we used to be yeah. a bit more conservative. Mm -hmm. And now, like I saw somebody take like a 50 foot whipper the other day. Like, and they were only like probably three feet above the rope wow. or the bolt. Yeah. Um, I was like, I don't know how that happens. It's weird. Yeah. Um, but uh, anyway. I used to be an instructor. I used to be a climbing coach. I used to be an instructor at a climbing gym. So I just have this just heightened pattern recognition for when people are belaying wrong. I can't even not. Same. Um, and I actually watched a really interesting video the other day where these this guy used a force uh, monitor thing and then went outside and tested a bunch of different lead falls to kind of test like the optimal catch so that um, when you catch somebody when they fall, you want to kind of like give them a soft catch and so they don't slam into the wall. It was really interesting. He was doing all the force monitoring and like based on where the person holding the rope was standing, if they were standing really far back or really close, whether they jumped, whether they didn't jump. Um, and it reinforced my belief that so many people at the gym are just just doing such a bad job because they stand like kind of perpendicular to the wall straight back out from it. And like, if you know anything about physics, that's the worst place that you could stand. Cause then when your climber falls, you're going to get sucked into the wall and then oh, yeah. when you hit the wall. It's going to be a hard hit for both you and your climber. So um, I think that's a contributor. And then a lot of times they do that and then their slack is touching the ground. So the rope yep, between them and the one. wall is touching the ground. And so then the person's going to take a, it's going to fall 50 feet. It's a that's huge fall. Oh yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting. Belaying changed. I actually failed my first belay test. I've been climbing almost 30 years. Yeah. Uh, it was funny because at the gym, they, the belaying is different now. I think Alex Honnold, he also failed his belay test at, at, the, at the same gym, um, which is kind of funny. Uh, and a bunch of other old school climbers like myself, but it was, uh, um, it's different now. Climbing's uh, changed, but it's, it's still a lot of fun. I do it all the time. 
Um, yeah, you have to get out to Utah sometime. Oh, I can't wait. Yeah. It's on my, it's definitely on my, my list. Um, I actually suggested it. My boyfriend and I want to take off most of August. Well, he would take mm -hmm. off most of August. I would work remotely to go on a climbing trip somewhere in the world. Um, but it looks like maybe Utah is going to be pretty hot in August. It's hot. I would say like September's good. Mm -hmm. um, August. Wyoming would be good in August. That's where I want to go. Yeah. It's like Wild Iris and Ten Sleep are Ten both sleep. really good. Mm -hmm. Ten Sleep's good. It's mm -hmm. a bit remote, but uh, yeah. It's very remote. <laughs> mm -hmm. But we're, I'm thinking about actually driving all the way out to Ten Sleep so that we could have the car because renting a car is... Oh, you don't want to have rent a car out there. That is, it's literally in the boondocks. Like I, I, I grew up in Wyoming. Like Everything's far. I grew up yeah. in Lander. Um, so yeah yeah so the audience lander wyoming is a uh now it's like a climbing mecca but it used to be a uh run down a cowboy and mining town i grew up in so uh um what was interesting is seeing climbing like kind of start you know at least get popular there um mm -hmm. uh, and then uh a tent sleep i remember that was uh i remember going there was brand new oh my gosh Actually, yeah there's <laughs> like nobody there oh now it's a, a huge uh it's a huge um huge place so yeah, hit me up if you're in the area. I'd love to, you know, go climb and. You yeah, know, one of my big. Give each other, we can give each other terrible belays. It'd be great. So. Stand pretty far back from the wall. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I one of my uh, my big goals in life. So my life has just been going so well for the last couple of years. Um, like I'm almost a little bit suspicious about it because, like, what you know, how is it going so well? Um, but I I think that um. My, my like next big goal is to find other people who like work remotely and can, like I love to travel. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons I switch careers. And I have not yet, I know you're traveling all the time. I should just come with you. I, I, I do it for work though. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't a join. Tag along. <laughs> yeah. my, my big goal in life is to like be able to find other people who want to um, travel and work remotely with me. And then also ideally people who would like to rock climb and mm -hmm. travel and work remotely because then we can go to like the Verdun Gorge. We could go to Spain and like, you know, get it, get a house together and climb and everything. Oh, that would be so cool. But would be cool. I don't have that at all. So I oh, it's funny. Cause like my, uh, um, uh, good friend, Justin Wood, who I, uh, a uh, really, really good climber in the States, but he's going to be in a uh, Fontainebleau, um, mm -hmm. for all of March. And he's messaging me and I'll actually be there. Uh, in France, I think twice in March, uh, yeah. but it's just like the, um, he's like, oh, we should you know, meet up. And I'm like, yeah, I won't be going to Font. I mean, I'm going to be in the city the whole time, which is uh, unfortunate because my, my younger self would have been in Font the whole time. Yeah. Not, not even going to any meetings because I was just, uh, I travel 